0: Thanks, Anna. <clears throat> How many of you have ever heard of John Wesley? Anyone? A few of you guys? All right. So uh, John Wesley, the story goes, was a young Ang- Anglican Anglican clergyman <laughs> or pastor in, in England in the 18th century. And the story goes that he was very, very religious, uh, but he was not converted. And he was standing in a crowd of people one day, uh, as a professing Christian, listening to someone fervently preach in the town square in London, and he recalls in that moment that he wasn't really interested in the sermon. Uh, Actually, it was a sermon being preached out of Romans, so maybe there's going to be a parallel this morning. I don't know, okay? (laughs) And as the man was preaching about the glories of the holiness of God and the glories of the gospel and the beauty of salvation by faith alone... Through Jesus Christ and His grace. Uh, Wesley says that he was powerfully touched by the truth of the gospel that day. He writes in his journal, just one little snippet. He says, Suddenly, in that moment, as I heard the gospel, my heart was strangely warmed. But it's not just like an emotionalism where he's like, Oh, that was cool. That kind of moved me. But in that moment, something happened. He went from religious to reborn. In that very moment, as he heard and believed the gospel, he went from dead orthodoxy and a religious wallpapering of his life to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that brought inward heart transformation that would totally, radically impact him and the trajectory of his life from then on. Similarly, I grew up uh, in the Bible Belt South. Which is a great thing. Um, I went to church, uh, you know, every day of my life, basically, and not really, but, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and all the things, right? Um, I got baptized at an early age. I memorized memory verses. I sang in a children's choir. I went to to little kid's church or whatever it was called, Um, but it wasn't until 17 that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, impacted my life to the degree that I was born again. And in that moment, a light switch went on, and I believe that God took my dead heart and spiritually gave me new life in Jesus. And what this sermon is about this morning, ultimately, is that religion can't save. And the title of my sermon uh, talks about God's judgment on the religious. And you're like, oh, that's encouraging. Another week of judgment and wrath. But again, it's setting us up for the glories of the gospel. As we mentioned last week, Paul's making an argument for the sinfulness of all humanity in the opening chapters of Romans. He wants to get us lost before he can get us saved. Amen. He wants to get us desperate before he can give us hope. He wants to show us how deep our need is before he shows the only solution in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Again, a reminder, by way of reminder, in chapter 1, 18 through 32, he focuses in on more obvious sinners. That's the nations, that's the Gentiles, those who actually physically bow down before man-made idols of stones and metal and worship them. Those who suppress God's truth and as a result, their hearts and their lives are full of rebellion and sin. Again, think younger brother, prodigal son. You remember him? He wasted his inheritance on wild living. What? Prostitutes, parties. He was living it up according to the world. His life was a wreck. But Paul's point is that the irreligious nations are justly under the wrath of God, and they will justly receive his future wrath. And at this point, Paul anticipates that there will be a group of people The religious in the room, the Jews, they're hearing him preach or they're hearing the book of Romans read and the opening verses of Romans 1, and they will hear about the pagans coming under God's judgment, and they're going to be like, amen, Paul, stick it to them. I'm so glad those Gentiles are going to get what they deserve. They're so wicked, unlike me. And I'm glad I'm safe from God's judgment. But what Paul wants to show us throughout Romans 2, 1 through 29, 2, 1 through 29, is why the religious are just another category of people who are equally broken and deserving of God's judgment. In some ways, they are more deserving of God's judgment because they have his word. They have his truth. They are, in actuality, the other prodigal son that no one talks about or ever preaches about or ever mentions. They're the older brother prodigal son. Remember the story, guys? Luke 15, y'all remember? The older son heard the news that that pagan brother of his had come back home. And and how did he respond? Oh, joy. I'm so happy. No, He responded, pouty and self-righteous and proud. And in that moment when he dialogues with the father, he was very disrespectful and dissatisfied with the father and being able to be with the father. And he felt like in that moment, the father owes me. But the younger brother, he's the one who really needs grace. But the, other, the father owes me. But here's the thing. In Luke 15, we find they both were outside of the house. You remember the story? They both were outside of the house and equally needing repentance, right? One was just more overtly sinning and one was internally more heartward sinning, but they equally needed repentance and they equally needed the father's undeserved loving pursuit of them, right? The father went out for the rebel and he went out for the religious in that story, They equally needed God's lavish forgiveness and his transforming touch. But if you read the story in Luke 15, the religious doesn't respond that way, like the prodigal, the the younger brother. It's been said, Romans 1, 18 through 32 is more about the irreligious and their need for Jesus in the gospel. And then Romans 2, 1 through 29, our text this morning is more about the religiouses need for Jesus in the gospel. My first point, God's judgment comes on the judgmental and unrepentant, verse 2, 1 through 5. So God ends Romans 1, 28 through 32, listing out what sins dominate the Gentiles. And to remind you from last week, it was really a long list, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanders, insolent, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, to name a few. And Paul's final words in that section is, you give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's like the nations, they're in their party mode and they're drinking and getting drunk and slammed and trashed. And they're like, hey, join me in that. Then comes the irony. The Jews would never give hearty approval to those type of things, right? Those, Those types of behavior. But here's the irony, What? they practice the very same sins. Their hearts are equally evil. That's the point of this text. They may not approve what's evil, and they may on the surface approve what's excellent, verse 17 of chapter two, but inwardly they do the same things. And this makes them hypocrites, inconsistent, not practicers of what they preach. And yet here's the greater problem. Paul's arguing that they should get it, that they deserve the same judgment and outcome of the Gentiles, but they don't get it. They end up actually strutting in their sin and expecting that God's gonna judge everybody else except for them. That's the danger of religion. So in verse four, Paul locates the problem. He's gonna say, I know what the problem is. I know what the problem is with religion and religious people. He locates it in the heart. Look at that verse four. He says, it's hard, it's impenitent, it's unrepentant. We could say it's spiritually dead. Remember Jeremiah the prophet, he says of the unconverted heart, it is what? Desperately wicked. You guys know that? And who can know it? He's saying that the religious hearts are just as broken as the Gentiles. They're just as bound to sin, just as dead, just as dirty, just as proud. Here's the point, just as needy of grace. But the religious don't see it. Paul says the religious is dangerous because they know a lot of truth about God's character that they've read in the Word. They know verse four that God is gracious. That is, He's kind. He's long-suffering. He's patient. And if that kindness was currency, God would be Fort Knox, right? The religious know that if patience was water, God would be all the oceans in the world combined. But here's the problem: they believe they're due grace. They expect grace. They think they already have it, but not because it's a gift that they don't deserve, but because God owes it to them because they're a part of the right group. And further, they actually don't even understand what grace does. What do I mean by that? Look at verse four. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Look at this, not knowing, so they know a lot. They know a lot about God's character, but they miss one important thing. Not knowing what? That God's kindness... What is meant to lead you to, you tell me, repentance? See, we're supposed to look at God's grace, ultimately revealed in Jesus, right? And say, wow, God, I sin just like the next guy. I sin just like my kids. I sin just like my wife. I sin just like that guy on the corner. Like, I actually think he's probably taking money and he's gonna use it on drugs. You know, he's not really homeless. But I sin just like him. And yet, you haven't struck me dead. Oh God, you're so patient, you're so kind. I believe that I don't want to have a stubborn heart. That's not what I want. I don't want to live like I don't need you. I need your kindness to swallow up my judgment. I need your kindness to change me into a kind person. That's the opposite of what the religious say the desperate in need of grace say, I need heart surgery and I can't perform it on myself. I need you to take this heart of stone out and I need you to melt it like butter so that I would love you and love my neighbor as myself. But if you don't melt this heart like butter, it will be flint. It will be callous towards you and your truth forever. That's what I need. One pastor said, any religion that doesn't begin with a deep experience of God's grace in the cross doesn't begin there. It will leave you smug, overly sensitive, judgmental, hypocritical. We see these things throughout this text and insecure. And here's my addition. It won't leave you radically changed. It won't produce a true change of heart, which will lead to a true trajectory change of your life. But verse five, the relig- religious say, I'm good. It's like a bad version of the Chick fil A app. They keep on racking up points with every purchase. There's like, ching, 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 going to get that Christian chicken sandwich. But every time they sin, They're actually storing up for themselves, not the storehouse of God's grace to come at judgment, but they're stacking up and piling up judgment for themselves on that day. We can't even arrogantly look at the religious. We have to look in pity and say, my heart's broken. The religious think they're good with God because they have the Bible they have the right answers. They have the right rituals. They have church attendance, but that's not God's standard of judgment. That's right. Second point, God's judgment on those who don't meet his standards. Verse 6 through 13. So what will God's standard be on judgment day? Verse 6, look at verse 6. He says, God says he will repay to each one according to their, you tell me, Works. works. So the standard, as one pastor put it, positively, if we can look from a positive direction, the standard is that the person has to be persistent in well-doing. That is to have consistent habit of doing good whether people are watching them or not because that's not their inward motivation. And they need to have faithfully sought glory and honor and and immortality not from the things of this world and the created, but they seek glory, honor, and immortality from the creator, the redeemer. Negatively, the standard is that if they can't be, they can't be self-seeking. They can't disobey the truth while simultaneously obeying unrighteousness. This means, I take it, if we're gonna escape God's judgment, we can't have ever put our own self-will before God. Can anybody say that in the room? We can never have sought our own glory instead of God's. And the religious fake out version won't do with God. It would be like, psych, I got you, God. Our good works can't be motivated out of love for self ever. Otherwise, we can't call them good works, right? That's right, right? It's like when I was deciding what I could get Anna for Christmas one year when we first got married. We've been married for 17 years, so guys... This is like year two or something, you know, I don't know. You know, she had put on a little baby weight, you know. I was thinking maybe I'd give her something to help her out. So I bought her the new, at that time, We Fit. That's an active exercise video game. Husbands, don't do that. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay, what? Here's the deal. I love video games, right? Win-win. Both of us get a present, right? My wife loses the baby weight, you know? She gets a little skittier, you know? But here's the problem with that that gift was for me. That robs the gift of its true goodness, right? That corrupts the gift. But see, Paul's point really is that's our gifts. That's our lives. That's our heart, always self-motivated, self-interested. That's the corruption of our good works. That's why Paul, uh, Isaiah would say, those are as filthy rags apart from Jesus. That's what we have to offer God. And the point is, if you can't measure up in verse six and on, what you should be expecting is wrath and fury that awaits you in hell. But if you can measure up, he gives a flip. He gives an alternative. If you can measure, measure up, you get glory, you get honor, you get peace. They await you in heaven. And here's the thing as he wraps it up in verse 11-ish, he says, but there's no exception to the rule. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile who sins but doesn't have the re- written Mosaic law or you're a Jew who is very familiar and you got a Bible in your pocket, you're very familiar with the Mosaic law or a scroll in your pocket because here's the reason, there is no partiality or favoritism with God. That's his point. Gentiles? Judgment. Religious? Judgment. God doesn't bend the rules. We were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God doesn't raise the bar in judgment. He doesn't say, man, that limbo bar is way too low. We're just gonna let it go up so everybody can skate under, right? He doesn't grade on a curve. Verse 13. It doesn't matter your religious heritage, your national identity, or who your daddy is, right? And that's what they were saying in Matthew's gospel. The religious was like, Abraham, I got Abraham as my daddy. And he's like, you need repentance or the ax is laid bare at the root of your tree. And you're coming down in judgment. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. Only the doers of the law will be justified before God on the day of judgment. And I personally, there's a lot of debate on this, what this means in this text, but I personally take it to mean that hypothetically, if you could from the heart perfectly keep the law of God, you'd be justified or right with the holy God. But at this point, everyone in the room and the world should simultaneously say, that ain't me. I haven't kept it. And I could never meet that impossible standard. The power of sin has so broken and tainted and corrupted every part of me that I could never fulfill those conditions. That's why Paul will say in Romans 3, 20, if it's left up to my imperfect doing, I'll be forever cut off from eternal life. It would be like some coach pulling someone out of the stands at the Super Bowl. They're playing in Las Vegas, I think, this year. Is that right? Y'all know? I think it's Las Vegas. Las Vegas. And they take some out of the stands, and they're like, hey, dude, if you can throw this football, football out of the top of the dome at halftime and land it, let's say, in the state of Texas, you're the Super Bowl champ! Forget those guys, you're the champ! That would be an impossibility. Even if I proudly thought, in my arrogance, I could throw a pigskin a quarter mile, okay? Nobody knows that reference. Okay, so... <laughs> Some may object. Well, Paul and other New Testament writers talk about the necessity of good deeds at the judgment. And you could reference 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, James 2, Matthew 12, just to name a few. And I would say, yes, but never as the basis of our salvation. It's always as the evidence of it. And that order is very, very, very important. As one pastor put it, Spirit-produced good works show we have saving faith. They do not add to our faith in saving us. Just like the apples on the apple tree prove life, they don't provide life. This means, as another pastor put it, God could put the believer on trial at judgment day and say this, Has this person's life demonstrated the effects of true conversion and all the people who actually knew that person would have to say yes if they're truly a Christian born again? Because this is the point that we'll be getting to in Romans. When Jesus takes up residence in your life, when you are united to the living God by saving faith alone, it will produce a change from the heart out The law comes in from the outside, banging on the door. Come on, get it right. Do it, do it yourself. And the person says, I can't do it. Then what God does is he transforms the heart on the inside and the person says, I want to do it. God, help me, right? Verse 14 through 16, Paul wants to keep on driving the point that religion can't save you. But this time he's going to attack it from a different angle. He wants us to know that just having the law can't save a person. And I know you're like, what does that mean? Well, here's his example one. His exhibit A, Gentiles, verses 14 through 16. His point is that the nations don't have the written Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments. And this is kind of a little bit of a repeat from last week. But they do have the work of the law written on their hearts, even though they're lost. Well, what is that a reference to? You guys know from last week? They have the innate, inward version of God's right and wrong, not Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder, right? But they're stamped with God's design. They have a conscience that understands right and wrong. And Paul's point right there is that that conscience mostly accuses them for botching it all, right? But because of common grace, even a lost person, can do right things even if they're motivated from the wrong motives and not motivated out of faith to the point that they feel justified and excused. They're like, yay, I tossed some money in the Salvation Army. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, at Christmas, I feel so good about myself. Or I helped that old lady across the street. Ding, ding, ding. And again, the point might be that sometimes The lost Gentile nations even shame the religious by their outward acts of love and generosity. They sometimes even put religious people to shame. But still, Paul's point is that one on Judgment Day, having the unwritten law and conscience won't protect them because Jesus will be there and Jesus knows the secrets of the heart. All our disobedience, right? Those things we did in secret and those things we thought were hidden from God in secret, Jesus will expose it. And I heard it a thousand times. It's like we got a recorder around our neck, a tape recorder, and it's recording all the things that we say when we say, I can't believe you do that kind of stuff. We're acknowledging that we know the kind of stuff we need to do, right? Or we got that video that's going to be before us on judgment day and it's going to replay everything, but it's also going to replay the motives of our hearts. And Jesus is gonna know and reveal all those secrets. The point is one pastor put it is when you peel back the external layers of the religious onion one day, you're gonna find the same corrupted mess you found in the Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? It has looked a little bit nicer on the outside. But the problem is the religious are facing the avalanche of God's judgment. And here's kind of what idea it is. Paul's saying the religious are facing the avalanche of God's judgment, just like the Gentiles. And they think holding up a flimsy dollar store umbrella is gonna keep them safe, right? We're gonna block it. Or they're bleeding out from a serious artery cut and they think we're just gonna apply this little Band-Aid on it and it's gonna be okay. Or their drywall, the religious has their drywall. It's got a huge gaping hole in it and there's mold back there and cockroaches. And, Skeleton bones and whatever, right? And they think, we're just going to put a nice thin layer of wallpaper over it. It's got unicorns on the wallpaper, so it'll be good, right? So what's their flimsy umbrella, their lone band-aid, their thin wallpaper? And that's what the rest of the point is for Paul. Paul. Namely, it's their relationship to law-related labels, verse 17 through 24, and their religious rituals, verse 25. Let me give it to you again. Namely, their relationship to law-related labels and their religious rituals. Final point, God's judgment on those who rely on the wrong things, verse 17 through 29. You see their trust in their labels here first. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. So here's the thing. Paul's going to say the religious boast and labels like, I'm Jewish or I'm the chosen people of God. Or we could say in our context, I'm a born again Christian. I'm conservative. I'm a ministry leader. I'm a priest. I'm a pastor. I belong to a Bible church. You know what I'm saying? We don't mess around. Okay. (laughs) It's a Bible church. We exegete the text, you know? But Paul's point, that doesn't protect anyone from God's coming judgment. That's just a flimsy umbrella. The standard you will be judged on is God's law. Did you perfectly obey it from the heart? Then the religious, they also can name every specific book of the Bible probably and name many verses that they memorized. It says they know his or God's will. The religious can affirm biblical doctrine on paper. They can properly uh, understand how to make decisions and, and follow biblical morals. That says they prove what is ex- approve what is excellent. The religious have been in the church for a long time, maybe lots of Bible studies, lots of Christian camps and conferences. They've been adequately instructed, it says, instructed from the law. But here's Paul's point. They haven't kept it perfectly. They are content with having the law, They're content with knowing the law, but they're not transformed by the law. You see the the point? They've got education, but they don't have transformation. And in verse 19, the religious don't just know the word, but they teach it to others. Look at that in verse 19. They're gods to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of the children. The idea is that the Jews boasted in educating those poor pagan Gentiles with the word. But in the process, they forgot they needed God's grace just as much as them. See, here's the truth. The religious without Jesus are equally blind, equally in darkness, equally foolish, and just as immature and just as in need of saving. And yet they find comfort in knowing the word, being able to argue the word, being able to burden people with the word, but never see their need to apply the word to their hearts and lives. You see how dangerous it can be? It's like you're inoculated, right? You know how that works? So, you got just enough of a dead disease, right? Or or whatever to inoculate you from the real stuff. And Paul's saying, yeah, you got dead orthodoxy, you got dead religion, and it's just enough so you can't catch the gospel, right? And the idea of Telling everybody else how they should be obeying the word, but never seeing your need to actually be changed by the word yourself. The idea is like thinking when the oxygen mass comes down, when the plane hits turbulence, you know, you've seen all those, those things, whatever what I'm saying. And everyone, this is your thought, you see the oxygen mass come down, and you're like, everyone on the plane needs the oxygen. And I'm going to get everyone on the plane the oxygen, but I don't need the oxygen. That's the idea. So a telltale sign that you're either lost or you're a Christian struggling with religion is if you hear a sermon or you read the Bible in your quiet time or you go to a conference and when you hear the word coming down to you, your first response is, man, you know what? I hate that so-and-so is not here. They could really use this text. You know, this scripture, this truth, they could really use it. Or like you're in a sermon and the pastor's just laying it down. I'm talking about he's just pouring it out. And you think, man, he's stepping on some toes. And you're sitting next to your wife on Valentine's Day week. And you're like just starting to slide her toe out a little bit more and a little bit more. And you're like, hey, I don't want the pastor to miss it, you know. Because while he's dishing it out, I want her to get all of it because she had her toes tucked under. You know what I'm saying? That's a telltale sign that you're either lost and you've missed it completely because the way it transfers the word, it comes down to you and you're like, uh, 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 off on of somebody else, right? And this is a word for me. And this is a word for us. The hypocrisy again is for the Jews, they've shattered the Ten commandments, both inwardly and outwardly. He says, you tell people not to steal, and you steal. You tell people not to commit adultery, and you commit adultery. You hate idols, but you rob temples. And maybe even the last part's a little figurative. I don't know, but I think probably what Paul's getting at is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you think you've got that wallpapering stuff going on where you've got a little bit of the right things on the outside to look good, he's saying, like, you're corrupt on the inside. And if you say, I don't steal... You're still in glory from God. If you say, I don't commit adultery, he's saying, you know what? You lust in your heart. That was Jesus' point. And you say, I hate idols. I hate idolatry. But the reality probably in this text is that you love to worship yourself. I think that's what Paul's getting at. And this type of religious hypocrisy causes the irreligious Gentiles. Here's what he says in verse 24. You look at it to blaspheme or speak poorly, that's the idea, to speak poorly against the one true God, right? This kind of religious hypocrisy causes people to blaspheme or speak poorly against the one true God because here's the thing, empty religion doesn't draw people to God and into their need for grace like a magnet. That's what it's supposed to be like, right? That's what it does, right? It's supposed to be like that But instead, religion repels people, just like a poopy diaper, right? You ever been around a religious person? Maybe you've been the religious person in the past and people don't wanna get around you. You're like a walking poopy diaper, right? And you don't realize you smell. (laughs) As one pastor says, religion is like a strange disease that when you have it, it makes everyone else around you wanna vomit. And he summarizes this in two main ways, and I think there's a lot to glean here, so I'm going to lay it down for us. First, religious use religion to get things from God instead of to get more of God. That's what you see in the prodigal son story, Luke 15. He's like, where's my fatted calf? Come on, where's my shoes? Where's my signet ring? I've been around, I've been doing the right thing. He just wants things from God. He doesn't want God. He doesn't understand grace. Second, the religious, this is so convicting, have to live like they have everything together. They can't take criticism, but feel the need to dish it out and feel an overwhelming sense of insecurity because their own righteousness is ultimately what they rest in, rely on, and must defend at all times, at all costs, because they don't grasp grace in their need for Christ's perfect righteousness by faith. I'm born again, I'm a Christian, but I struggle with religious thought. I mean, the other day, Anna does this workout routine, and I've seen her her do it for like years now, and I'm like, I'm going to give it a whirl, you know, because I've never tried it before. Let's do this. And so she's doing the thing, and then I'm doing the thing, and she's doing the thing, and I'm doing the thing. And she's like, you know you're not doing it right. And I'd be doing the next thing and she'd be like, that's actually, you, you, you got to stretch a little further back. And all of a sudden I feel this something welling up inside of me, you know, I feel it welling up inside of me, pause. And then a few days later, we're walking, you know, we're walking and we're having a conversation and Anna is laying down truth to me that I need to receive because I'm struggling and I'm not doing the things that I need to do. And while she, she's telling me the truth, I start feeling something on the inside. And it's not good. And I start to say something like defensive, like, and who's talking? You do all this, right? That was about to come out of my mouth. And in that moment, I think through meditating on this text, I was like, how come you can't take criticism that you didn't do that exercise right? Or all nine of them right? (laughs) How come you can't receive the truth? Because you're really actually, you're not doing right. And you need to hear that word from your wife you need to repent. Why can't you receive that truth? And here's the answer. I'm in love with the appearance of my own righteousness, and it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. There's only one righteous, and it ain't me, and it ain't us. So it said of recognize the spiritual need, the religious umbrella, Band-Aid, and wallpaper with the law-related labels, and finally with religious rituals. Look at verse 25. For the Jews, circumcision was the outward external marker that you were with the people of God, like you're in the in crowd. And circumcision showed that. But even then, it was supposed to be a symbol that reflected an even deeper truth. And that's what most people don't realize. They don't realize that about circumcision. They don't realize that about new covenant ideas like baptism. But this is what the Bible shows us. Listen to Deuteronomy 10.16. Again, first five books of the Bible. God says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. What? The foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Listen to Jeremiah four. 4. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, let my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And then Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. So for the Jews, circumcision was supposed to be an outward sign of an inward, deeper reality. And what's that reality that it was supposed to display? God has melted my heart in repentance. I need him. I'm no longer living according to my, my desires and my ways and my evil deeds. I'm following God. I love God first and foremost. I found new life in him. That's what circumcision was supposed to display. Similarly, in our day, many of us take the sign of new creation. What's the sign of new creation in the new covenant? Or new birth. The rite of Christian baptism without experiencing the inward reality it's meant to represent. We put our trust in decisions like walking an aisle, signing a membership covenant, or countless other acts that are important to us or our families or our denominations, but we don't know what it means to have true life by the Spirit of Christ. And in verse 25 through 27, Paul is saying hypothetically that if there were Gentiles who kept all the law except weren't circumcised, they would stand at judgment and condemn the Jews who had circumcision, but failed to keep the law. But I think the idea from Paul is, no such from the heart, law-obedient Gentiles exists. Every Gentile, every Jew is sin entrapped and deserving of God's wrath. And what Paul is saying in verse 28 through 29 is that under the new covenant, people are, aren't are just those, God's people aren't just those who are a specific ethnicity or who have some religious externals correctly they are those whose hearts have been circumcised and transformed by the living God right. isn't that cool Amen. he says not by the letter what does he mean the letter of the law that is coming from the outside but by God's spirit coming to live on the inside isn't that beautiful beautiful the phrase by the spirit, by the spirit means you couldn't bring the transformation that is needed. Isn't that good? You can't. I try so hard in my flesh, but I can't. I couldn't do it at salvation. I can't do it in my sanctification. But specifically at salvation, no man or woman, no pastor, no priest, no parent, no person could do it. We need God to do it. That's the point. And it's even, it goes on a little bit further at the end of chapter two. He says, in his praise, that is the one who has been given new life by the Spirit. His praise is not from man, but from God. What does that mean? I think it means religious people can't get enough of men's approval and men's praise their surface level actions that are really faithless deeds that are not produced by Jesus and it's what they long for and they strive for they need it but the spirit indwelt christian by god's grace and mercy they find their ultimate approval and praise from god the father who sees our heart and in its lack and its sinfulness and simultaneously god sees the perfection of jesus covering that heart right And furthermore, God the Father sees the beauty of Jesus' life beating through us. And he delights in that. He sees the beauty, loves it. And he celebrates it. And what we'll see in Romans is that when God's standard of judgment was only the doers of the law will be justified before God, that is only the one who could throw that football from Nevada to Texas, there was only one who could do it. Jesus Christ, right? That's what we're gonna get to in Romans. He did it in our place. Reverse back in the text a little bit to verse six through 12. He aced the test for us. We get the eternal life he earned, the peace he earned, the glory, the coming glory with God that he earned. Then he died to cover all of our failures, all of our sinful thoughts, motivations, both inwardly and outwardly. Christ's blood covers our sin, our selfishness, and our glory hogging and our religious junk. Then Christ rose from the grave. He defeated our sin. He defeated our death. And those who repent and believe his gospel will be changed. I promise you. We'll get to this too in Romans 8, 4. Christians who are walking by the Spirit are being enabled. Yes, however imperfectly, they're being enabled by the indwelling Spirit of God to love God and love others, and in so do, doing that, fulfill the law of Christ, right? Colossians 2, 11 through 15 says, in Jesus, in him, also you were circumcised, ding, 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 with a circumcision made without hands, because Jesus had to do it. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Jesus, him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. John Bunyan, a famous Puritan pastor, was quoted as saying, it's one of my favorite quotes, he says, run, John, run. Run, John, the law demands. We could say, throw that football out of the Nevada Stadium to Texas, John. So, run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Throw that football, you just don't have any hands. (laughs) but gives us neither feet or hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly, than gives us wings. Amen. Paul's point, religion can't change you. It can't save you. Only Jesus and his gospel can. Amen. Amen. I heard a story. It was kind of cheesy, but I liked it. <laughs> Dr. Christian Bernard was one of the first doctors that ever performed a heart transplant. Okay, so got it? Take the bad heart out, put the good heart in, right? And after a second transplant surgery, the patient wanted to see his old heart. That's a little odd, (laughs) okay? But I know some people who'd like to see that, right? So Dr. Bernard took him over to a cupboard and pulled out the jar with his old heart in it. (laughs) Okay, according to the story, the man said... So this is what was giving me so much trouble. This was it, huh? And he handed it back to the doctor and turned and walked away and never came back. And that's what I'm calling the religious to do today, right? To understand their need for grace, to understand the reality of coming judgment and to say, my umbrella, cheap flimsy, my Band-Aid, My unicorn wallpaper, it's not going to be enough in the judgment. Jesus will, though. Jesus will. Jesus will. So if you're knowledgeable about the Bible here this morning, you're moral, you go to church, but you've never been born again, you've never been saved. I want you to call out to the Lord today in repentance and say, I need you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for raising again. Thank you that in you is everlasting life. And be saved. And if you're a Christian here this morning, like me this week, who is born again, but struggle with religious tendencies, I want you to put your faith and trust in Jesus' righteousness, perfect righteousness for you. One more time if you're struggling with being smug or being overly sensitive or judgmental or critical, if you're just content with labels or superficial obedience or just knowing the word or being a part of the right groups of people, but you're not being transformed inwardly by God's spirit and through the power of his gospel, I want us to cry out to God for the help and say, I need you, Lord. I need you. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for your goodness, Lord, and your grace. And God, I pray that even this morning, you might save someone. You might give them the heart transplant that they need. You might spiritually circumcise them and set them free. Lord, I want to thank you this morning for saving me at 17. Lord, I had a lot of good things going in my life, but I did not have you. And I thank you for powerfully awakening me to my need for grace and transforming me from the inside. Thank you for uniting me to Jesus. And Lord, I trust that it's his life in me that matters. Lord, help us if we struggle with religion. Lord, we know it's the stinky, poopy diaper that we got on our heads and we need to take it off. Because we want people to be attracted to you, Lord, in the true gospel, and we want their lives to be transformed as well. So would you do that for us? In Christ we pray. Amen.